0: Would you open your Bible tonight to the book of Matthew? We want to continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the most profound teaching in Scripture. Largely ignored by the church as far as what it says. Seems like the more modern we get, the more new ideas people come up with as to what the Bible means. Doesn't mean what it used to to some people. It's sort of getting gray. But if you're a believer and you want to serve the Lord on His terms, which is what Christianity is, then you believe it just the way He told it. And when He began in Matthew 5 and the first several verses with the Beatitudes, He is describing to us the kind of character that His people will have and what it takes to live what He says later on the rest of the sermon you got to live like this you know the meek and and poor in spirit and all of those kind of things that describe the kind of people that are the product of the work of god doesn't the bible still say that god is at work in you and if there's areas in your life that aren't like this would he not be working on you to bring you like that Some people cooperate and it happens, and others seem to be able to resist the Spirit and it's put off too long and they don't have good success in a Christian life. But if you'll live the way He told us to live, if you'll believe what He tells us to believe, God will bless you. Now, last two times we talked about the principle of witnessing in the world, the principles of salt and light, the kind of testimonies that Christians have in the world. And we're supposed to be salt Give flavor to the earth And preserve the earth Make it commendable to God Make it favorable to God I'll say it for the 15th time If we weren't here There would be no reason for God to be Faithful or gracious to the planet Any more than When Lot was in Sodom The only reason God was good To Sodom was because Lot Was in there And when Lot was taken out It was horrible judgments, and the same thing will be in what I believe is a rapture of true believers in the earth. The world will undergo a a time of real difficulty, a judgment, great judgments. You read about them in the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of controversy and debate over what all of that means. I guess there always will be until, as the Spirit of God said, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, He will show you things to come. There will come a day very shortly and soon in which things that have been sort of hazy will become very clear to those who look for it. Not everybody will see it. Not everybody who goes to church actually realizes and understands what's being said, but some do, some do. And when you begin to see it, the impact of seeing things God's way, the Spirit of God opening your eyes to behold wondrous things in the law and so forth, it begins to change your life. As your life begins to change, your values change, what's worth, what has value begins to be more spiritual than physical and material and so forth. And we begin to live on a different level in this world. We begin to shine as lights in the world. People begin to see the transition from the nature of Adam to the life of God. They begin to see the change in your life. Your neighbor sees it. Your family sees it. In fact, the first people who should see it is your family. It should be your husband or your wife or your parents. Like somebody said once, if you want to know whether or not I'm saved, don't ask me. Ask my friends because they know me. Ask my mother. Ask my dad. Ask my brothers or my sisters, and they will tell you whether or not I'm born again. Isn't that okay to say that? It is. It really is. So we come now in our study down to verse 17. Now, remember when I gave you an outline at the beginning, I don't know if you remember all this or not, but the New Testament deals with principles of conduct. From verse 17 to the end of chapter 7, it is dealing with the kind of conduct that Christians should have toward others. Conduct in this world. And here it begins in verse 17, describing these things. And it begins with the subject of the law. Because there's a lot of people, when you talk about The law or the Old Testament, it's only a half-hearted interest because there is the idea that that's not important today, that all of that stuff is gone and done away with, and, and it really has no specific value to us. And so we don't put much emphasis on it. A lot of people don't. But listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said in verse 17, He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of the least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven." But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me begin the night by asking you a question. Has the law passed away? Now, don't answer me, because if you were wrong and I said, no, that's not true, you'd feel bad, you might not come back or something. But I'm just asking you the question for you to ponder. Has this law passed away? Has it come to an end? Does it have any... Value today, or has the Old Testament has it been done away, and is it without application? In other words, as we go back and read stories in the Old Testament, as we read things in the Old Testament, in the law, the first five books of Moses, is there anything there that is of value to us, or do we read it as just past history without any application in the New Testament? Because a lot of people need to answer that question And probably you need to begin with What does the scripture mean by the law and the prophets? Like in verse 17 Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets To put it away To make it of no effect To make it of no value So what is the law and the prophets? If you remember the story about the transfiguration in Matthew 17 You do, don't you? When Jesus was transfigured and two of his disciples saw it, and the Bible said they saw him standing there with Moses and Elijah. Now, Moses represents the law in the Old Testament, he's called the lawgiver. Elijah was called the chief prophet of the Old Testament. And standing there beside him, the picture that we see is that both the law and the prophets, which the Bible calls the scriptures, See, the New Testament Bible was non existent. There wasn't one. And what the early church had only was the scriptures, that is, the the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets both pointed to Jesus. Turn to John chapter five. Jesus said in John chapter five and verse thirty nine, he said, Ye search the scriptures. Now, the Pharisees were great scripture searchers, maybe because the common person of the era did not have access to the scriptures. You know what I mean? They had the scrolls that were under the authority and the oversight of the priests, and the Pharisees, of course, studied under them, and they were part of that system. They were the teachers, and so they would teach and look and examine the scriptures, What the common man knew about anything spiritual was what these teachers of the law taught them. And they laid a lot of heavy burdens, Jesus said, on people. They went beyond the law, and they began to add a little bit of this and a little bit of that. The next thing you know, it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Now, in the 39th verse, he says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. He said, for they are they which what? Testify of me. Now, that would mean that whatever we read in the Old Testament, in some way, some part, especially in the law and the ceremonial law, had to do with the type or shadow of Jesus Christ. Even back to Noah's Ark, as you well know, we all know that the Ark was just a box that, was pitched on the outside with this pitch to keep the water out, and all it could do was float. It had no rudder, didn't direct itself. It was just at the mercy of God. And the ark was a type of Christ. It's a picture. And every animal that came into the ark, even animals that were opposed to each other, even lions and lambs, they no longer had the desire to kill and fight or be afraid of each other. Their natures were changed. They became new creatures in the ark, in Christ. And you have pictures like that throughout the Bible of what Jesus is. And this is what the law and the prophets declared. Jesus said, What you read there is about me. They didn't see that, but he was telling them about it as he's telling us about it. This is what it's all about. Look in John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Now, what did Moses write? The law, right? Now, if what Moses wrote was about Jesus, then don't think, as Jesus said, that that's done away with. Because that's where we go in the New Testament to learn about him. It's fulfilled in the New because he said it would be fulfilled. But he said, if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, what does he say? You will not believe my words. Isn't that something? So how could something that important, now this come from the lips of Jesus. If you don't believe what he said, you won't believe what I say. So we know right away that whatever Jesus is saying here, he's saying that the law, I did not come to do away with it, but I came to fulfill it. In fact, the men who wrote in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Peter writes in first Peter chapter one verses ten through twelve that the prophets of old wrote as the Spirit of Christ which was in them gave them to write. So, not only is the word given to us by the Lord, but the word is about the Lord and it concerns the Lord. Now, this is Old Testament. Because, again, when we preach out of the New Testament, we turn to one of the New Testament books and begin preaching, especially from Acts and after the Gospels. We can't really understand all the things that are in the epistles unless we have the Old Testament. Some clever person said once that the New the New Testament. The new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed and that is true. The things that declare who Jesus is were first forecast and first predicted and foretold in what we call the Old Testament. And without the Old Testament and the prophecies there fulfilled in Christ in the New, we might not even know who he was. And how many times did Jesus say to us these things were written that scripture be fulfilled or these things were done so that scripture would be fulfilled or this happened so that scripture would be fulfilled everything it seems is coming to pass and will until the end of this age so that everything that God has said all of the prophecies will have come to pass the only way we know what those prophecies were mainly is by reading in the Old Testament the restoration of Israel which we have seen happen after 2000 years of being scattered they still have their language they don't have their high priest yet they don't have their temple yet they will as far as I know they will it has to be because the Bible said in the last days the Antichrist will show himself as Christ sitting in the temple so we know that's going to come again but we have that told that foretold so we can look forward to that not only things about Israel but even the second coming of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament Even the new birth, Jesus said to Nicodemus, He said, you mean you're a teacher of the law and you don't know what I'm talking about? And He says, you must be born again? He could have said, have you not read Ezekiel 11? Where I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will wash you clean with clean water and so forth. I'll take away the stony heart and I'll give you a heart of flesh. People didn't know what that meant. That wasn't something as an Old Testament experience, but it was written there. And like they said, sometimes these prophets would write things down and they would look at it and say, I know that was inspired. I don't know what that means. It wasn't given to them to know what that means. It was given to us. But if we did not have that, it would be difficult to show that it was predicted in the old and it come to pass in the new. I don't say we live by the law any more than Jesus said we live by the law. But he did not do away with this Old Testament and this Old Covenant. He didn't say it's no longer valid for today. He never said that. Not at all. You see, as I said before, when the Bible said all Scripture is given by inspiration of the Spirit, the only Scripture that we can point to is the Old Testament. What we call the New Testament happened to be letters. Letters that Paul wrote. Nearly half, maybe half, including Hebrews Half the New Testament was nothing more than a letter penned by an apostle to a church to encourage them, to correct them, to point out things, to show them things, to edify them. And those letters were recognized, and even the other apostles said that his letters are mighty like, and he mentions other scriptures. So they put it on a par with the inspired Old Testament words. So that what is said in the New was already predicted from the old and is coming to pass in the new. Therefore, we know two or three things. We know that God said it, we know that Jesus has fulfilled it, and we can trust it. As nobody else has a book like this, written over, what, 1,500 years by how many different kinds of people, from farmers to kings, and it all meshes together and it comes to pass because all scriptures God breathes is given by the Holy Spirit and the scripture that we're referring to again in the New Testament when we read that they were writing about the Old Testament it was many years after the church had started before there was a New Testament book where all these letters were put together and it took a while to sort that out Bible history is interesting because there were many books and many letters that people wrote and not all of them were accepted because they didn't all either verify the old or meet the criterion for the canon of Scripture. I don't want to get into this. But a lot of the books in those days, though they were written by good men, were not considered to be inspired writings. And they had councils and meetings and determined that what we call today the New Testament are the inspired God-breathed words of God. Now, I accept that. I accept that because I'm not wise enough or learned enough or smart enough to go back and read all the rejected books and see which ones I want to add to my repertoire of reading. I Just accept what's happened in the second and third century and say that's good enough for me. Because I believe the hand of God was upon these men as they did this. And a few hundred years later, then we got commas and periods and question marks and chapter divisions until we handed down today the Bible. And there came a time in history just before the Reformation when the printing press came out and Bibles were printed and common people could read it and Catholics had a fit (laughs) Because they could now, they didn't have to rely on the word of a man, they could read it for themselves. And a lot of people began to realize that what they had been fed, like Pharisees feeding the Jews who were ignorant, a lot of things they had been fed spiritually were not right. Well, there was a, a protest, and it was called Protestantism, the beginning of it, in the Reformation time. And that's all interesting and so forth, but let me stay with this subject tonight because the Old Testament law was basically given to man in three parts. It's given the Ten Commandments, or the moral law. Now, there is no way, if you know what the Ten Commandments are, there's no way you could ever say that that's done away. There is nothing about the moral law that is able to save you. There's nothing in this moral law that can forgive you. The Ten Commandments hanging on a wall somewhere are a reminder of man's sinfulness. Every one of them had been broken. And the law declared that if you break one of these laws, you are simply labeled as a law breaker. And therefore, you are subject to the penalty of a lawbreaker. No matter you 55 miles an hour, you did fifty five point zero 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 You're a lawbreaker. There's no mercy in law. It just stands as a cold, hard statement. This is right. And if you don't do this, you're wrong. And man began to realize he couldn't live by it. There's only one God. You'll have no other gods before me. And look for how many people worship another kind of God today. You don't make any images unto God. You don't have statues. We don't need symbols, birds, fish, or bushes, burning bush. We don't need any kind of symbol to represent God to us because then it'll become an object of worship like idols are. God said, don't do that. Besides, you can't make an image of God. God is spirit. How would you make an image of spirit? He is not a spirit. He is spirit. He can be at all places at all times. A spirit would have to be here or there. But spirit is at all places, all time. God goes nowhere to be there. He's always there. There's nothing he doesn't know, nothing that he is possible for him not to know. And then thirdly, he talks about don't take his name in vain. How many people do? How many people say, Jesus? that's a way of saying Jesus in a moment of anger, frustration, or confusion. Or a lot of people think saying Jesus Christ. Man, and then they say that that way. That's vain. That's a contemptuous way to speak of God. In your frustration, you mention His name. It should be mentioned in prayer and worship and adoration, not frustration, as though He's the cause of it. And then, you know, in the Ten Commandments, he said, you know, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. To honor your parents. Number five, don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Those are just ten moral commandments. They cover the spectrum of a man's life. And everybody, one of those, has broken them. So they loom before you as the very reason for judgment. But this is what the law did. The law was holy, Paul wrote. The law was perfect. It was holy. It was a revelation to a lost man of what is right. This is God's standard. This is what he goes by. This is what he watches over to perform and gives him cause for judgment. It's his law and it's pure, and it's clean, and it's holy. And man has a problem with it because he just can't keep it. But that's the moral law. It will never pass away. Folks, you can never do away with that. God will be holy from the beginning until the end. In heaven he'll be holy. His name will be holy in heaven. Loving your parents is never passed on. Killing and stealing and not committing adultery and lying and wishing you had what somebody else had has never passed away. Not even in one small way has Jesus come to do away with any of that. Anybody tells you all that stuff is gone, it's verse 20 for them or verse 19, whatever it was. second part of the Scripture or the law consisted of was the judicial or the civil law. This was to govern people's conduct in their relationship with each other. And and it's interesting. I guess it might be a tedious study to go through that verse by verse and point out this or that, but what to do if somebody accidentally hurts you and you hurt them back or somebody takes something didn't mean to. And it's all kinds of verses in the Bible there, in the law, about how we relate to each other. It's called the judicial or the civil law. It was why punishment takes place, and how your conduct should be as a believer or as God's people. And then the third thing, the third part of the law was the ceremonial law. We had the moral law, the civil law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. That had to do with sacrifices, and we got a lot of types of Christ in all of those sacrifices. You know, the feast days, the festivals, those three big feast days every year, and the Two of them had extra little things to go with it, and for a week long, they would last, and trumpets would be blown, and symbolic things would be done, and animals would be sacrificed, and all of that pointed to Christ. I'm amazed today at people who still want to practice some form of Judaism. They still want to go back and practice one of the holy days. We're going to dedicate next Sunday to one of these festival days. And we're going to have a cedar meal. And we're going, you know what? All of that was for the purpose of revealing Jesus. He's been revealed. Even down to the little wafers, it all pointed to Christ. And it's already happened. And going back and practicing something like that is unnecessary. You know, Catholic priests, they have the Mass all over the world every day. And they crucify Him every day. The Catholic cross. Have you ever seen the cross that the Catholics have? He's still on the cross. He's still hanging there. He hadn't raised from the dead. He's still hanging on a cross. He's still dead. Dies every day in the Mass. Miracle happens every day, and they turn wine into blood every day, they say. But a lot of people think they have to go back and practice these old things and use Hebrew names for Jesus, like to call Him Yeshua. Just call Him Jesus. Jesus. When you get over in wherever Yeshua is, you can say Yeshua. Or Joshua, Yeshua. You can do that if you want to. But this is what the law was all about, the Old Testament law. Again, it was a moral law. This is what God requires. This is the way He wants you to treat each other. And this is how He wants you to practice your religion. These are the kinds of sacrifices. This is what it's for. Present it this way. Do this with this kind of sacrifice. And on a certain day of the year, you do this with this kind of sacrifice. It was all about Jesus. And it was a teaching people how to live. Now, we don't do that anymore. You know why? Because all of these things had their fulfillment in Christ. All of it. Being under grace and not under law now as a way of life for us, we don't have to go back and practice Old Testament principles to do that because we have been given a new and living way, a better way to live. As the Bible says, no man could keep the law. No man could live by it. He meant to, he wanted to. A lot of sincere saints tried very hard to. But the law one day just told him that, you know, there's not much you can do about this. Turn to the book of Romans. Romans has as much to say about this Romans and Hebrews and Galatians as probably all the rest of the books put together. Turn to chapter 7. The law was a revelation to man of God's righteous standard for life. Do you all really believe that when God gave the law with all of those codes of conduct, specific ways of presenting yourself and your sacrifices to Him, do you really believe that He held those people to that? Do you really believe He expected that of them? Or did God say like the modernists would say today, well, you know, God knew that being in the flesh, men couldn't keep this. And so when they didn't do well, He understood. you really believe that? Or you believe that when man tried to live on God's standards as a sinner, as sinful people trying to live the way God wanted, don't you think they begin to realize we can't? We keep bringing sacrifices to the temple area here all the time because it seemed like all the time we failed again and again and again and again. How do you know you failed? Who told you you failed? Who said you need to come to the temple and bring a sacrifice? Who told you that? The Word. The Scriptures. That's how you live. And when the priest would teach the Scriptures and people would begin to see that, they'd begin to realize, well, this is how we have to live. And when they didn't live that way, what happened to their hearts? Their conscience. Their conscience would bear witness to the fact that you're a lawbreaker. What am I going to do? Well... In the meantime, you bring this kind of a sacrifice to God. And God has said, I'm going to teach you something. You're a sinner and you're guilty. You find an animal that you can afford. And let's take a lamb, for example. A lamb. Now, before you bring a lamb to God, take it to the priest and have it examined. What do you mean examine. Well, it has to be perfect or God won't accept it. There could be no blemishes or flaws in this lamb. It has to be perfect. It's going to cost you. It's going to take some time, but you've got to feel this way about the Lord. And you bring this lamb to God, and the priest receives it. The lamb dies in your place. It becomes a substitution. Are you with me? The lamb is paying the price with its life for your sins as God has dictated. So you see here, Christ. You know, how Jesus took our place at the cross and died in our place, and He became the one mediator between God and man. And that it was Jesus who paid the price. He was a ransom for our souls, a propitiation. All of those kind of terms described throughout the Bible describe what Jesus did for us. Now, we wouldn't know that in the New Testament if we didn't have the Old. The book of Romans is simply... Pointing out in the Old, it goes back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and said, look, it says this here and here and here and here, and this was all fulfilled in Christ. Take the law, for example, in verse 1. It appears that know ye not, brethren, for I speak unto them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man so long as he liveth. Huh. Well, does that mean that we're under the weight of the law? How do we get out from under it? Well, you have to go to Romans 8, verse 1 and following to find that out. But Romans 7 says, you know, the law is a heavy weight on people and it seems to have its place over a man, has power over a man so long as he lives. He uses a marriage as an example there. He said, you know, the law teaches that a man who is married and a woman who is married are married as so long as they both live. Now, if she dies or he dies, then either one of them are free to marry again. Who is it to put to death the power of the law over us? What well, Jesus did. So that we be married not to that, but unto Him. And that's Paul's language as you read. I won't read all of that. But in Romans chapter 3, if you'll turn over there, in verse 23, I'm sure you've heard this one before. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me ask you a question. Now, how do you know? How do you know you sinned? All you have to do is just say, well, if a person says, well, I don't know that I'm a sinner, well, okay. <clears throat> have you ever coveted anything somebody else had? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? you ever look upon a woman to lust after her? He deals with that. Have you ever used the name of the Lord in vain? Have you ever murdered somebody? Oh, I've never done that. Well, Jesus goes on to say, you know, the law says if you murder, you have a sentence. But I'm telling you that if you are mad enough to kill somebody, you're guilty. Wow. And he's using the Old Testament into the New Testament as a principle of life. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 through 26 Know ye not that what thing soever the law saith, it saith unto them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Why are we guilty? Because you read in the law, you'll find that you're guilty. You've broken it. You don't have anything else to say. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in the sight of God, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Jesus mentioned them. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth. To be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now, in the Old, as we'll go back to Romans 7, in the Old, you'll find that the Bible specifically declares that all men have sinned, that there is none righteous, not even one. So that a person who was born again knows they're a sinner and you repent. And you begin to realize as you study the New Testament that the revelation of the Old comes. It's been there all along. And it says there is no man who by trying to keep a law or by trying to keep a code or by trying to count his tenth out or by trying to do something by his actions and deeds, no man can make himself right with God. For every time you try to take the law and and obey it, and the Pharisees had an interpretation of it, Some things they would do and some things they wouldn't do. Remember Jesus said, you have omitted the weightier things of the law? Matthew 23. He said, you have omitted the weightier things of the law. He said, these you should have done and not left the other things undone. So they were good at quoting what was convenient. But as a man begins to read through there, he realizes that, man, I have no complaint. I need to shut my mouth before God because I am absolutely a heathen sinner. I am in need of being born again. I need to be made new. I am lost and undone in my sins. If you go back to Romans 7, in verse 7, what an interesting book. He said, what shall we say then? Now that the law is a revelation of sin, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid No, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law has said, Thou shalt not covet. Isn't that true? I wouldn't know that I was a lawbreaker until I realized that I don't have time to go to church because I'm trying to work and make a lot of money. My idol, my God is money, and I'm dedicated to it. I wouldn't have known that I was that type of person until I read that. And when I read that, God takes the words and the Spirit of God smites my heart with them. And I realize I'm guilty. Like I said a while ago about the Ten Commandments, there's nothing there that I can make myself right with. It just simply states this is the way we should live. And if you break one of these laws, you're a lawbreaker. No mercy in a law. Law is a cold, hard statement about the truth. A wonderful truth, but there it is. And the judge says, Did you drive 55 point miles an hour? And you said, Yes. He says, You're guilty. And you said, Here's a New Testament picture. (laughs) Can you have mercy on me? And the judge would say, I will. That's grace. I will. I have mercy on you, and I won't hold you to all of that, and so forth. But it's a good thing to know that somebody up there has graciously taken our place, stood between us and God, and appeals to God on our behalf. The one who intercedes for us, I thank God for all of that. Amen. Verse 8, But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of Concupiscence or evil desires, lust, for without the law, sin was dead. What does that mean? How do I know I'm a sinner? The law. Something has been said that God said that when I read it or heard it, that was what God used to slay me. Verse 9 For I was alive once without the law, then the commandment came. Sin revived, and what happened to you? I died. Is it possible then to be dead in trespasses and sins? Well, how then can you be made alive? This law stands against me. The law looks at me, though it is a revelation of the right standards of God. It's an enemy to me. I can't live it. The reason I can't live it is because I'm a sinner. That's what a sinner would say. A sinful man like me, I can't do it. It's a hopeless case. And one day, in the fullness of time, a perfect man who was both the Son of Man and the Son of God in one body, a dual nature. He was the Son of Adam. He was the Son of God. He was all God. He was all man came to this earth and lived according to all the righteous standards that God established. Broke nothing. None of them. Fulfilled all the just requirements that God established. Was accepted by God as a suitable sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And in our place, He died. And when God raised Him from the dead, it verified the fact that we are released from the penalty... And the burden of sin, sin no longer has dominion over us. In Romans 6, we've been set free. And you hath he quickened, Paul writes, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So we realize in the New Testament that what we have is because in the old, we are described as being sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. There is None righteous. Oh, but I go to church. I do this. I do that. Well, see, you're a little law keeper. I'm right with God because I do this and I do this and I give money and I go to church and I help this and I attend and I participate. Therefore, remember the man came to Jesus. He said, good sirs, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, what does the law say? Obviously, he wouldn't want to do away with the law. if That's what he appealed to. So what does the law say? And the guy said, well, thou shalt not this, and thou shalt not that, and thou shalt not this, and thou shalt not that. And the man said, all these have I kept from my youth. Okay. Jesus said to him, if you will be perfect, there's one thing you lack. Mr. Have-it-all, he said, go sell it and give it to the poor. And then you come, find out where I am. You come, because it'll take you a while to do that. Then you come, take up your cross, and you follow me, and then you'll be perfect. Whew. Jesus appealed himself to the Old Testament. He said, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus said, what does the law say? I See, he couldn't keep it. Nobody else could. But if you could, there it is. And somebody like Jesus had to take our place at the cross, stand in the gap for us, And deliver us. And back in this same chapter 7, verse 9, I ended at, I was alive without the law once. The commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. (laughs) It told me that I was a sinner. Oh, my. Wherefore, you know, the law is holy and the commandment holy, and it's just and it's good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin, by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but what? I'm carnal, sold under sin. I have no hope. We're lost, they would say. What do you do? Well, unless God does something to save you, you die like that. But God did do something, didn't He? God did do something. He sent His Son Jesus into this world. Look in chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, you're made free from something, but God did not say, now that you're made free from it, we're getting rid of it. No, I mean, I'll get to that in just one second. Verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us huh, that the righteous standard of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Jesus made that possible. It wouldn't have been possible without Him. And again, we were all like sheep gone astray, and we were floundering and falling apart, but Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There was absolutely nothing I could do to save myself. I couldn't go to enough church meetings, volunteer enough of my services, give enough money, pray long enough. There was nothing, there was no deed that I could do to be saved. There was not enough attendance at the best place in the world where the gospel is practiced. There's no place I could go to be saved. I'm lost in my sins. The only hope for me is a revelation of Jesus Christ, who He is, and my sinfulness. Folks, unless that happens, nobody will ever be saved. I see a lot of people living crazy lives, living ridiculous and fruitless lives, half-hearted, You know what they need and what you should pray for? A revelation of Jesus. I'm not talking about the little children's book where the Gentile Jesus is on a rock with his face shining. I'm talking about a revelation to your heart, the eyes of your heart being enlightened. And you may begin to see personally who he is as well as who you are. And in that moment, have the courage to surrender your will to God. Bow your head and receive the life that He gives. But there's no other hope for man than that. There's no other way a man can be saved. You may be very religious. A lot of religious people have been very religious in churches. Churchgoers a whole life, people have bragged on them. Their funeral was a glowing testimony to how active and how busy they were in church. But that never means that because you're busy that you were born again. Because as I've said before, and I'll say it again, this is not the message tonight, but if you have been born again, your life absolutely changes. If it does not change, you have not been born again. You cannot be what God is doing and be like you were. You're a different person. You fight. You struggle. It's not easy. It's difficult. And God makes it work. Amen. He really, really does. Now, back in the text where we started, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, "Think not that I am come to destroy, that means abolish or to do away with, the prophets. Obviously, He would not based on just a little bit that we've seen. This is what Jesus pointed to, not only to verify who he is, but to verify the sins of man. May I suggest to you that this word will remain until the end? That when Peter wrote that the word of the Lord shall endure forever, the word he was talking about was this Old Testament? We know, and it was written very richly in Romans and Hebrews, that we can't live by it. I mean, we can't live by the civil and judicial. We can't do it. The ceremonial, we can't do that. But all of that was fulfilled in Christ. As a means of being right with God, all of that is set aside. Now, we learn from it. We don't cast it out because we learn from it because this fulfillment was in Christ. But the moral law never changes. Any Christian in this room or wherever we are tonight, anybody who lives right, lives because of conviction. Something in you never leaves you alone. You always need to be tampered with by the Lord. You always need something that He gives. God being at work in you is in there both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Not some days a week, but every single day. I've seen too many instances where somebody started out well, tried, talked the same way, sang the same songs, had the same joy and all of that. And then for whatever reason, things begin to slide, begin to miss a little bit, back away just a little bit, give themselves a little room, make a few excuses, have a substitute or two, compromise a little bit here, a little bit there. Next thing you know, they're back where they started. They still go to church. They're very religious. But nothing of any value as far as what will get you into eternity. Nothing is there. It's been replaced. Folks, it happens all the time. All the time. There's far too many people in churches today who just look for the easy way out. What can I do? How do I get through this? What do I have to do to be saved? Give me the least requirement. And they want a little law. Give me a one, two, three, four. Give me four things I have to do, and then every day I'll see it. Then I'll be saved. Look what I'm doing. And you're back to law. Let me tell you something. Being led by the Spirit is not easy because the Spirit of God is very narrow. He doesn't lead you into freedoms that the world has. He restricts and restrains. He puts the stop up into a lot of stuff in your life that you allow yourself to do. Now, He comes and says, Stop. You can frustrate the Spirit of God. You can do that. It's sin, but people do it all the time. God holds us to live in a way that Jesus is showing us to live. And I'll tell you something else about Jesus He's pretty narrow, He's pretty narrow. He himself said the way that leads to life is narrow. Didn't he say that? Now, everybody wants to get in, but he said only only a few shall find it. Who are the few? Will it be you? I know it's been a long, hard, difficult day, and you're about to just go past all the way out. Let me ask you a question again. Will it be you? Will you be one of those that enter into that narrow gate? He doesn't say you can't, he just said some will not be able. It's just the world's given you too many options to God, too many distractions that are easier, too many things that sin brings to the surface. It doesn't appear as sin because the devil's subtle. Too many times you hear a little voice, hath God said? Did he really mean it like that? Eve, you really think you're going to die? <laughs> you really think if you take a bite of this fruit, you're going to die? Die? And so she feels intimidated and says, well, what kind of God do you serve? He created everything and said it's good, didn't he? Help me. So you're going to eat something that's good and die. <laughs> Boy, your head's on crooked. Is that the reason she ate? I don't know. The Bible said the devil's very subtle. He puts periods where God puts question marks, and he puts question marks where God puts periods. As God said. And sin. Sin takes the form of that. There's all kinds of ways. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Oh, boy, that's a tough one. But he said, verse 17 again, think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I haven't come to destroy or go down and make that void. He said, but I've come to fulfill. Our Bible in basic English says, but to make complete. Another version says, to give their full Meaning. Again, Jesus said in John 5, 29, He says, for you search the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, you think you have eternal life. That's how you find out how and what to do. He said, well, the Scriptures testify of Me. That's why He would never say, I'm going to abolish what's about Me. I'm not talking about being under the sentence of the law because I'm not doing what it says. He fulfilled all of that. Are you with me? All of that as a means of being right with God, which no man could, has been set aside as a means of righteousness, and now it is simply faith in Christ. But then the Spirit of God, Jesus said when He comes, He will take the things of mine and what? Show them to you. You don't have to read that stuff now. It's shown to you. There was a time you got by with not doing it His way, and now you can't do it His way. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, the rest of this chapter, from this seventeen, eighteen, nineteenth 19th verse on, the rest of the chapter, Jesus refers them back to the Old Testament. For example, verse 21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said by them of old time. Who would that be? The writers of Scripture. Who were the writers of Scripture? Well, their Old Testament. Right. He said, You have heard it was said by them of old time, Thou shall not kill. Yeah, 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 I remember that. Jesus said, Well, now here's the deeper meaning. That's what the law said. But let me tell you what God intended for it to mean to you. He said, If you're angry with your brother without a cause. And then he begins to describe name calling. You're living in a day of name calling. Verse 21, he said, You've heard that it was said. Verse 22, but I say, What does that mean? Jesus is explaining to these people what the law meant. Verse 27, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say. He said, If you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. You're as guilty as the person that did it. I'm sure the folks are going, Who knows what I'm thinking? God knows. Now, He wants you to know that He knows what you're thinking. There used to be a song years ago when I had brown hair. It says, you can't go to jail for what you're thinking. Well, you can go to hell for what you're thinking. Jail would be better than that place. Because somebody knows all the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Somebody always, at all times of day, always knows what you're thinking. What you're thinking when you're alone, by yourself what you're thinking when nobody's around you, watching you, the things that you do, the things that you say, the thoughts that you entertain. The devil can put thoughts in your mind. You don't have to leave them there. God knows. And Jesus said, you know, you may get by with saying, well, I've never had an affair with another woman. Never have. Have you ever lusted after one? <laughs> Who hadn't? Well, then you're as guilty as the man that did it in the eyes of God. How many of you believe that the Sermon on the Mount is pretty narrow? He goes on to say in verse 31, It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. But I say unto you. They must have looked hard at each other about that. He ended by saying, Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. That's all he said. That was all he said. He was referring them back to the way they were living based on Old Testament teachings. They gave themselves the privilege. Moses gave them that, but God didn't. And he said so. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said by them of old that thou shalt not forswear thyself or use oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all. What the courthouse requires it. What did God say? God's above the courthouse. Hello. God is greater than the courthouse. You can say this, I will affirm to tell the truth, because as a Christian, that's all I can do. Yes, yes, or no, no. Yes, yes, or no, no. Jesus said, you don't have to try to prove how honest and sincere you are. I swear by the hairs of my head. I swear by my mother's grave. I swear by the stars of it. You're trying to pick something out to swear by, to verify that you're really, really honest. Jesus said, if you're a Christian, your word is your bond. They thought, wow. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said by them of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, resist not evil. Resist not evil. Where's that today? No wonder people don't want to read all of this book. No wonder they don't want this to be the way they have to live. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, You'll never be a terrorist if you believe that. You'll never terrorize any soul in the world if you believe that. In fact, if you believed in the moral law, you wouldn't need a law. Put your finger right there because I'm going to come back to this. Look in Romans 13, verse 7. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to custom, fear to fear, honor to honor. O no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth one another hath what? Fulfilled the law. Then he goes on. For this, verse 9, you might want to underline that. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is... Briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's Matthew 7 and 12. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. If you live like that, there'll be no need for an army police or jails or laws or anything. Because you would never do to somebody else what you wouldn't want somebody else to do to you. Is that why Jesus said in Matthew 22, he said that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, and the second is like it. Remember what it was? To love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 38 through 40. Love your neighbor as yourself. One of the hardest things for us to do today is to love. And the reason it's hard to love because a lot of people have a hard time forgiving I'm trying not to preach on that, but i got one coming. Forgiveness. It's what's wrong with terrorists today. It's what's wrong with false religions today. It's what's wrong with Muslims who are intent on killing people. It's unforgiveness. You cannot forget their thousand-year history. You can't get over it. Our ancestors were invaded by this group, and then this group, a thousand years later, said, we're going to exact our revenge, never been forgiven. That's why divorce is so easy today because people don't forgive. The pain is greater than the scriptures. The hurt is more damaging than righteousness is to the heart. It's can't forgive. Evil thoughts about other people. You won't find a lot of glad hearted people that are full of unforgiveness. And the Bible majors on it. Jesus did when we get the Sermon on the Mount to the Lord's Prayer. When he got through with the Lord's Prayer, he said, You know, you got to forgive. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. How far does that go? You all still with me? If you're unwilling to forgive whatever somebody's done, who forgives you? That's one of those very narrow things that God holds us all to. I have no luxury of having vengeance against anybody. Vengeance belongs to God. And while there may be terrible pain about your past and what somebody else has done, you don't have the luxury of giving up heaven to feel the way you feel. You've got to forgive. And people that cannot forgive, a Sunni Muslim cannot forgive a Shia Muslim. Not because they're bad people, It's just because they've been taught and trained to hate anything different. There's no forgiveness, there's no acceptance, it's just hate. What a terrible state to find yourself in and to pass on to your children. What a legacy. What a terrible thing for that to be. Well, let me close by saying this. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. He said, Till heaven and earth shall pass over, not one jot nor one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. In saying that, Jesus showed his endorsement of the law that it's not going to pass away because it must remain because so much of what we look forward to and expect to happen is comes from prophetic moments in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and the minor prophets have all pointed to something that hasn't happened yet, must happen. You've got to have the books to know that God said it's going to happen. This is where he said it's going to happen. It hadn't happened yet, but it will. Whether you believe it or not, it will happen. Where do you think all of our promises come from? How about the promise of healing your body? That didn't originate in the New Testament. Jesus bore our pains and carried this or that, but there was also healing in the Old Testament. Under the Old Testament, Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. And what happened? They got healed. I am the Lord that healeth thee. He's Yahweh Rofikah. I'm the Lord that healeth thee. That's a promise. That's a covenant name of God. Oh, that belonged to the Jews. That was to the Jewish people. Okay, let's pause right there. What about Deuteronomy seven fifteen? 15? I will remove all sickness from the midst of you. Well, he's talking to the Jewish people. That's rehashing of the law in the book of Deuteronomy. Just before they cross over, they're going over the law again so they understand. Oh, okay, it's just Jewish. Thing. Okay. What about the Psalms? What about Psalms 103? He forgives all your iniquities and He he heals all your diseases. He dealt with sins and then physical things, spiritual and physical in one verse. What about Proverbs 4? His Word becomes medicine to your flesh. That's Old Testament. Well, that was written to the Jews also. Huh. Was anything written to us? Well, no. Everything that was written in the New was... Written because of what was said in the old. Well then, is anything for us? Because when I read the New Testament, I read things like, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Well, I know that's in the New Testament. Turn Second Corinthians chapter one and verse twenty. These things are made possible because of what Jesus did. You say, Well, they were written to the Jews. All right. Follow me here. Let's see if they were written only to the Jews. Verse 20. For all the promises of God. Are you all with me? All. What does all mean? That's the thing you stick in your ear. No. All, meaning totally all the promises of God. Where do you find them? They're not all in the New Testament. Where are all of them? They're back there in the Old Testament. All the promises of God, not just healing, but everything else. Prosperity, well-being, peace, and joy. How about Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Psalm 37 said, He delivers me from all my fears. He will renew my youth. In Psalm 103. Psalm 91, He says, With long life He'll satisfy me. Those are promises. Oh, they were written to the Jews. Really? Verse 20 here says, For all the promises of God are in Him. Who's Him? Jesus. All the promises of God are in Him, yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God by us. For all the promises made to Abraham, Galatians 3, he said, All the promises that were made to Abraham were made to Abraham and his seed. And Paul writes, not as of many like seeds, but as of one, Jesus Christ. So all the promises that God made to Abraham—he probably an Iraqi who became the leader of the Jewish people—I think he came early of the Chaldees in that modern-day Iraq. Okay, but anyway, all these promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. His seed was Jesus Christ. All the promises. Healing, blessing, prosperity, peace, joy, good sleep, well being, all of that belongs to Abraham and his seed. Who is his seed? He mentions that it. it's Jesus Christ. And again, Second Corinthians two said, All the promises are in him, yes and in him. How would you know what any of your benefits are in Psalm one oh three? How would you know what the Lord and his benefits are if you didn't have the old testament? Point made, and I'll close with this. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets or the Old Testament scriptures, but to fulfill it, to bring it all to completion. It must be completed before the Lord will come back and establish his new kingdom. And he prophesied that also, the millennial kingdom. So he said, all these things are going to come to pass. If we destroy the law or set it aside and make it meaningless, nobody will know when things happen that it happened because it was prophesied. We're dead to the system of the law as a means of being right with God because no man could be right with God by keeping the law. But Jesus kept the law and ended its reign over man forever and turned to us. He said, the law has been kept and you believe in me and the righteousness of the law will be kept in you. I know those aren't simple things to understand. It's worthy of a good study in the book of Romans. And that's not easy. But it's rich in your heritage, your spiritual heritage, and who you are and what you have. Don't take anything out of it. Read it for what it was, the inspired word of God. We don't have to count our little peas and herbal little what's out to be right with the Lord. All of that's changed. But this is what the law was for, was to remind us of not only who Jesus is and what He did because of your sins, but all the promises that you have in the Old Testament are in Him. They come with Him. And when He comes to you, all of that is yours. And the Christian world is largely ignorant of this. Everything you'll ever need in this life for peace and joy and contentment and well-being has been given to you in Christ Jesus. You may never know that. Nobody may ever teach you that. But it's true anyway. Ignorance is a horrible enemy. A terrible adversary. And a mind that is geared to, I don't care about all that stuff, is a terrible thing to waste. We don't live in this world long. We're not here forever. But while we're here, we ought to live it on his terms. Every day is a walk with Jesus. Every day is peace and joy. How do you know? Because he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. He didn't say you wouldn't walk in bad place. He said, when you go there, I'm with you. He said in Psalm 91:15, I will be with you in trouble. When you walk through the shadow of death, he said, I will be with you. My rod and my staff, they shall comfort you. They're symbolic of his power and his authority that are given to you. Moses had a rod, didn't he? He threw it down. What did he turn into? Snakes, serpents. What did God tell him to do? Pick it up again. And what happened when he picked it up? It became a rod again. Interesting. God is faithful. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless to us a living word. Not a dead letter, but a living Word that prompts us daily that inspires us in our moments alone a word which we choose to remember a word which as we reflect upon it brings us peace and joy brings us hope expectation the folks sitting before me Lord are your people they're not mine, they're yours each one has a soul each one has a heart Each one here tonight has a need, something they would like to release unto you and be delivered from. And I ask you in Jesus' name tonight, as we pray briefly before we go, that you would deliver tonight, especially, our greatest fears and greatest problems and let peace rule in our hearts. And make us to know that by the stripes of Jesus we're healed, delivered, set free, and provided for. Now before you go tonight, while your head's bowed and your eyes are closed, take advantage of this moment and ask the Lord to deliver you, grant you, help you, whatever it is tonight that's kind of a weight in your life. That He would set you free, give you peace, make your faith to rise up to meet the problem and overcome it, whatever it is. Father, as I pray, I pray you will deliver them tonight. Those that suffer the most, in Jesus' name I ask you to deliver. Lord, teach us how to bring our problems, our woes and our difficulties to you and cast all of our care over on you. We know we can do that because the Word of God says we can. And now we thank you in Jesus' name for hearing us, delivering us, ministering to us, and setting us free. For we receive our freedom and deliverance, whatever we prayed for, we receive it now in Jesus' name. All the people said, Amen. Amen.